You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we gather here in the middle of the day to hear your word. Move it in our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's good to see some of you again. You came back after my story yesterday. It's good. Um, Yesterday for Lent, we looked at Abraham to see uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Today, I want to look at Paul. And so if you can, turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3, 1 through 7. It's towards the back of the Bible, Galatians 3, 1 through 7. And I want to look at Paul because yesterday we looked at how God calls us out in the life of Abraham. But today, I want to look at the engine that allows us to go out the driving force that helps us to do so. I'm going to read it, Galatians 3, 1 through 7. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish and after beginning by means of the Spirit... Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Amen. I think Paul wants us to see three things from this text. Gospel birth, gospel growth, and then gospel greatness. I have to do things in three. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm sorry. It's gospel birth, gospel growth, gospel greatness. Um, First, gospel birth. If you look at the very first verse here, Paul roots his angst for this people, these Galatians. Because their very eyes have seen Jesus clearly portrayed, right? Sometimes you're like, if I could just see Jesus clearly portrayed, well, these people have it. And yet Paul says, you still don't understand. You still don't get it. You've seen him portrayed, but you're still missing the gospel. And he tells you why. Because in verse 2, you need the Spirit, right? In verse 2, he says, you need, did you not receive the Spirit, and so now you say, oh, okay, the Spirit is what makes Jesus real in your life. And, of course, the question we have to ask is, well, how do you know if you have that? Paul is saying gospel birth happens, and the individual has to grasp not just the Christian message, but the Spirit has to move it in your heart as well. It's not enough, therefore, than just to know the Christian message. There's a lot of non-Christians out there. They know the Christian message. It, it doesn't do anything for them. There's actually p- religious people who know and believe the Christian message. But you know what? The devil believes in Jesus. The devil believes as well. That's not enough to just believe. A Christian has to be, then, therefore, someone who, to whom, in whom, with whom Jesus Christ dying for you becomes an active power in your life that only comes by the Spirit. Uh, I grew up biking in New York City, Way before, they, right now they're starting to put these bike lanes everywhere, and they're fine, they're great, but, you know, I feel like people are losing 
the, the, the fear of God when you bike in the middle of Manhattan. And I used to bike, and I, and I still do, uh, probably I shouldn't as much, but I still bike, I, I used to bike a lot more without a helmet because it wasn't illegal. It's still not illegal to bike without a helmet. And um, growing up in college, right after college, I used to work with a mission agency in London with Bengali Muslims, um, folks that had come over from Bangladesh, and um, we were helping kind of provide uh, English um, classes and various other sundry uh, things for them. And I became close with the director there. And one day, recently, a couple years ago, I saw on his social media that uh, uh, he had been in an accident. And so I texted him. I said, hey, you know, are you okay? What happened? And he said, I was actually biking right around the corner from where I used to work right in his neighborhood, and he got hit by a car. And, um, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. And, of course, he says, uh, after that, he says, hey, you want to see a picture? And what do you, when somebody says, you want to see a picture, what do you say? No, I don't want to see a picture of you, uh, of what happened. And he says, all right, I was like, all right show me a picture. And he sends me a picture of his face, and it's all black and blue, and, and there's stitches, and there's still blood uh, that's sort of um, still, that, you know, is all over the place. And he kind of looked like a zombie. After I saw that picture, I rode my bike with a helmet for a very long time. Why? Did I get new information? Did I all of a sudden... Uh, have more content in my head about the dangers of riding a bike? The answer is no, actually. Did I, all of a sudden, did I read new statistics? And, and, have, and, and was that affecting me? The answer is no. What happened was, I didn't get new information, but the information was new. It was new in my life. It, it had become alive and real. I actually finally saw something that abstractly I knew about but it became real. The truth that had gone in my head it had been moved now into my heart, and it had affected my actions out into the world. I think that's what Paul is trying to say here, is that Paul is trying to say these truths of the gospel have to go from an abstraction that might be in your head right now into a lived experience. Uh, the person who put this better than, than anyone, I think, is Jonathan Edwards, um, who he, his, his main... Uh, metaphor about this is, is about honey. He said, you know, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet. You can know, you could be a chemist and know the molecular breakdown of glucose in honey. You can know its stickiness. It's all its, its properties. But it's vastly different than if you put honey on the tip of your tongue and you taste its sweetness, you have a completely different understanding about what honey is. So it's one thing to know its, its concept intellectually. It's different to actually experience that sweetness. This means then that some, there's something about Jesus more than content. That's good that you're listening to this sermon today. You can, you can listen online. A lot of us listen to content online. But you're missing how to actually take content and move into experience when you miss all the other things that a church does, particularly on Sundays when you sing and you read and you, and you kneel and you pray. Those things are ways of taking content that, you, that might be in your head and move it into your life. And I, think, I think the problem is that we've been trained in our context to be consumers of content. Our culture has told us to do exactly that. But there's so much more to experience than just that. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That you have to give yourself into worship is the process of taking a truth and making it the truth of your life. This is why, by the way, if you go back to our text, it says in verse 4 that you have to have an experience of God in your life. 
To really have gospel birth, then, is not just knowing the precepts of the faith. It's not about just reciting. That's, that's half the battle. I was an Eagle Scout. I can repeat to you the, the Scout law. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, uh, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. I can repeat those things over and over and over again. That doesn't make me one of those things. It doesn't make me that I've not actually embodied necessarily those things. And, and the reason why is because it's one thing to have it in your head. It's different in your heart. Real Christians Therefore, have a change in them, that you realize the gospel is not just something for you to kind to, uh, of, of conceptualize. The gospel has to move in you. In other words, you, just, you don't move on the gospel, you have to let the gospel move on you. You don't have to just understand it, you have to let it understand you. And all the concepts, this is really, really important, that it's not, um, I grew up in a Christian home, I knew all the precepts. But it didn't actually have an impact on my life because it hadn't got, I had gotten it maybe, but it hadn't gotten me. And so I think Paul is questioning for us that he wants us to ask this afternoon, have you really seen Christ crucified? Not just in general, not just conceptually, but Christ crucified for you, individualized to you in an experiential form. The word crucified in our text today is actually the, it's in the perfect tense, which means in Greek, that's a, it means if a more literal translation is having been crucified. It denotes a past event that has a continuing effect on your life. Basically, Paul's asking us, you know, he wants us to say, has, is this real? And so you shouldn't be just saying, I want to be more important to my life. That, that's not what's, what he's being asked of us. It's, that's like asking a king to be a servant. You're not supposed to say, oh, I'm, I'm worried I might become too Christian. If that, if that concept is in your heart, then what's happening there is you're, not, you're, let, you're using him as a product to kind of use. There's you and it, and you're kind of differentiating. That's, that's a product, not a power. And he's, it to, for gospel birth to move on you, you have to let it do so, not you move on it. That's the first thing we see here. Now, gospel growth. What's so interesting about Paul is he doesn't just see Jesus crucified as the beginnings of the Christian faith. I think a lot of us do. He also sees it as the engine and growth for all faith as well. Go to um, verse 3. He says, you begin by hearing and seeing him vividly. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, the way into the Christian faith is also the way on in the Christian faith. I think the problem is the default for a lot of us as Christians is that uh, you, you get in, grace is given to you, he clears your slate, but now you have to live a life for him. And Paul's saying, no, that's actually not how it goes. That's not how God actually works. That's, it, that's, taking, that's trying to use the law of God as the grounds by which we know that we're actually in or out. Um, there's been a lot of stories recently in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, about how DNA evidence, DNA testing, is taking men and women who have been in prison for decades, and they're actually free, they're being freed based on new data. And there was a, a couple years ago, there was a um, case where there was two men who had been in prison for over 30 years. They were on death row, and the DNA evidence proves it wasn't them. And all of a sudden, they were freed. When you read stories like that, there's mixed emotions. You're glad that justice has been done, but then you're, you're, you're upset and mad. You're wondering, like, wait, wait a second, our, we, our systems that we have here are flawed, and we've, we've taken not just years, but decades away from others. And um, some, some scholars estimate there's tens of thousands of men and women 
that are just like this. And these men now are free, but they can never fully get back what was taken from them. Psychologically, all the studies show that even though they might be free, there's still a form of imprisonment that they carry with them, that their habits and their ways and their actions have been affected and always will be affected that way. Even though all along they were always in the eyes of God not guilty, they feel guilty still in ways in their lives, in, in, in their actions. Even though the, the state called them condemned, God never condemned them. God had always seen them as free. And I think there's a lot of us in this room that are doing the exact same thing, that you and I were free in Christ. We have been through Jesus. We're not actually condemned. We're not justified by the law, and yet the way we're living our life on a daily basis, day in and day out, is we're trying to use that law to earn our salvation, and there's a condemnation that we're placing on ourselves. There's a, there's, there's a, um, we're forgetting that we're actually free, that if Christ is crucified for you, if he really is, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's Paul in, in, Genesis, in um, chapter 2. That means Jesus lives the life I should have lived and died the death I, sh- I should have died, and there's no more condemnation. That phrase has been thrown around a lot, and as our first point pointed out, you can just know that intellectually. If it hasn't moved in you, it doesn't do anything. And that's why you have to start going beyond the just sort of intellectual and start going back to the fears and the habits. What we're doing right now, why are the fears and the habits that we have the way that they are in our life? Why, why is the, the porn problem, the, the reason why we don't change, the reason why we throw ourselves into things, into our work, into our family, I have to have the best work, I have to have the best family. A lot of the time, it's not because we don't believe in God. Many of you actually really do. So please don't hear me say, you know, um, you need to go to God with your anger problem and say, God, please remove my anger problem. Uh, That's the first step. But you need to first go underneath that and say, why is the anger problem there in the first place? What is being taken away or what I think might be taken away that's making me angry? What is that? Why am I overworking? Why, why, why? It's... uh, with my people, I try to say, it's not just the sin. What's the sin beneath the sin that's operating in our lives that's keeping us from actually fully throwing ourselves on his mercy and letting that experience move in our life? And I think there's only two options here. You either, either save yourself or let him save you. You either live for it or let him live for you. And if you go deeper, you start counting, you get at some of the elemental things of, of our narratives. Like, why is it that I'm always looking for that Prince Charming? Why, Beauty and the Beast, why are we, the, we're these beasts looking for that beauty? You have uh, Harold Abrams in, in Chariots of Fire, right? Uh, he's trying to get the Olympic gold, and why am I running? I have 10 seconds every time I run the 100-meter dash to justify my existence. That's us. You have Rocky, right? He tells Adrian, why do I want to go 15 rounds in the ring for, uh, against Apollo Creed? It's so I know that I'm not a bum. There's different versions for you and me, and you have to kind of personalize this, but you have to get at the fact that the deep, deep need to prove oneself, our achievements or relationships or the family, all the spinning we're doing to, to, to the rest of the world to, to show that we've actually done something proves that at some level the realness of Christ crucified for you is not there. It may be intellectually, but not personally. And the, the problem is that there really is a handsome prince for you. There really is a beauty for your beastliness. There really is one who will go into the ring of life for you and fight for you. 
who was crucified for you. And if you see him clearly portrayed with the Spirit, you grow. And therefore, we need to turn to him not just at the beginning of our faith, not just in the midst. It's saying, I need you now. I believe, help my unbelief. And so here's my last point. Gospel greatness. Paul wants us to, to see what this might look like. And so he uses an example, right? Just like I've given you examples today. He uses an example. He goes to Abraham. And he quotes Abraham. And he says, so that also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's, it's a, almost like a, he's ringing a bell. He says, hey, don't take my word for it. Go back to, Gen- that's a quote from Genesis 12 that we looked at yesterday. And then later on in, the, in, in Galatians 3, he goes to Genesis 15, basically saying, if you're going to understand what I'm trying to say, get what happened back then. Well, what happened then? Abraham was not trusting God. He didn't believe in God's goodness in Genesis 15. And so he's, he looks at God and says, how do I know you're really good? And God says, I'll tell you how. Take a bunch of animals, cut them in half, spread them apart, and, and, and um, you know, create an aisle. And the reason why he did that is because back then you didn't have contracts. You and I don't, you know, we have pen and paper today to kind of create contracts. They didn't have that. What they did is they had an object lesson where they, they visibly, visibly created a system where you tore these animals in two and both parties were to walk between the pieces, essentially promising, if I don't hold up my end of the agreement, let me be torn in two as well. And Abraham obviously knew, would have known this system. He would have said, well, I know how this is going to work. We're both going to make agreements. That's how I can trust you. I'll fulfill my end of the bargain. I'll love you and obey you and be good to you. And you fulfill your end of the bargain. You're gonna, God, you're going to love me and provide for me and care for me. And if everybody's doing their job, then we're all good. And to his amazement, when the sun set, a smoking fire pot representing God walked between the pieces while Abraham sat on the side. And then walked between the pieces back and, f- and forwards. Essentially saying, hey, Abraham, as God, if I don't fulfill my end of the promise, if I don't fulfill my end of what I make, the promise I'm making to you, I, let me be torn in two. But because Abraham sits on the sideline, he was also saying, by the way, when you don't fulfill your end of the promise, let me be torn in two as well. And that's unconditional, free grace. Abraham could have faith, he could trust God, he could know God's goodness because he saw that God vowed to be torn in two, not just for him if he didn't fulfill his end of the promises, but also his. That's why Abraham could risk everything that we talked about yesterday. That's why he could go out, is that he had that kind of a surety to go out from where he knew to people whom he didn't know. It's the same reason why, folks, you, we here in Birmingham, you might have uncertainty in your life. You might, not have, you might have unfulfilled promises. You might not know how your life will end and what will be next. But if you had this assurance, if you saw that you could trust him, that he would sooner end life with himself than end life with you, that's how we know that we won't go to pieces. That's how we can make it the day in and day out. God doesn't give you enough grace to make it in 50 years. He gives you enough grace to get through today. And then tomorrow, when tomorrow hits, and the next day, and the next day. Because you don't have to go to pieces because he ultimately went to pieces for you. Even if you have a little faith, right, just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of trust. Some of you are saying right now, I don't know if I can trust that much. I need more. But folks, it's not about the amount of your faith. You could walk out those back doors today, and you could really believe that you can fly, have a great faith about it. I don't think anything's going to happen. Because it doesn't matter the amount of your faith. 
It's the object of your faith. Even if you have a little bit of faith in a very sure object, it will be enough. And there's no greater object that I know of in the world that is strong enough as, as faith in Jesus Christ. He's as solid as you get. He died so that we can live. And if you're wondering how much is enough faith to, for salvation, it's whatever amount that leads you to say, thee, not me. Not what I do, but what he did. Whatever amount that might be, friends, sit in that space. Let him be crucified for you. And if you do that, then you will be children of Abraham. You'll be able to, to um, imperfectly believe, but perfectly be loved. Hold that truth. That doesn't just give you assurance of his love and timing. It grows in you. Last thing I'll say is this. There's a, my favorite part of Harry Potter um, is, is when Dobby is actually freed. Uh, Harry Potter um, frees him from his bondage and gives him an article of clothing. And, and Dobby, with his piercing eyes, looks at Harry and says this phrase. He says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, but your goodness Dobby never knew. Harry Potter was great. Everybody knew he was famous. But his goodness, I never knew. Many of us in this room, we know of God's greatness. But the reason why we lack assurity is because we're not sure of his goodness. And what we need to do is we need to come here and see before Jesus was even conceived, at the heart of God was God himself being willing to be torn in two for you. Place that at the center of your life, and it will become that experiential power that can be the engine to propel us out into the world. Will you let that be your life? Will, that, will you let that be your narrative? Not these other ones that are out, that are floating around, that are out there. Those are good things. Don't make them ultimate things. Will you let that be true for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, no cloud can dim this sun, no cold can cool this warmth. If we let this experience be the warmth that generates just the, the energy and the power in our lives, what you've done for us, what you're doing for us, what you, what you will do. Help us to see the root of our problems often are not seeing your goodness as a, as a driving force in our life. We don't, we don't trust. We don't put ourselves at the feet of your cross. Help us to do that because your spirit has come into our lives to reveal your nature. Turn our hearts and minds towards you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.